many dairy goat breeders have questions about nutrition? And this week, Cameron and I are happy to have Morgan Allen as our guest. Morgan breaks down nutrition in a way that's easy to understand and will help you make sure you are feeding the right mix for your herd's goals. Welcome back, Goat Gabbers, to another exciting episode of Goat Gab. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Cameron Jodlowski. And I'm your other co-host, Laura Warren-Hughes. We're so excited to be with you guys this week, and thank you for joining us again on this newest episode. This is episode 71, in case you've lost count. So uh, we're moving close to that magic 100 we're excited this week. Episode 71 features a guest of the program here, a friend of the program, I would say, someone that I have uh, long admired for their beautiful goats that I found when I first judged, because I think I judged this herd probably five times in one year. Uh, it's Morgan Allen. Morgan, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, guys, for having me. Oh, yeah. Morgan, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your herd and uh, your goats and your uh, kind of your upraising in, in the dairy goat industry? Sure. Um, our herd name is Hay Creek Farm, and we raise Oberhostly and Recorded Grades. Um, my husband and our two children live in Kenyon, Minnesota, which is in the southeast corner. And we've had registered goats since the mid-90s. Um, I had them um, with my family growing up. And then we just kind of continued that after, after Keith and I got married here and we enjoy showing and we've had a, also a small commercial herd for 13 years or so and have sold milk to an artisan cheesemaker. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of the story of our little herd. Morgan, I heard that you also have a sweet side to the products that you make. Yeah, I can add that too. A couple of years ago, um, kind of as part of our partnership with Singing Hills Dairy, which is where we sell our milk, we started to make caramel sauce. And so that's been just kind of a little side project for us um, and kind of a way to use the extra milk when we have it. That sounds delicious. Yeah, very sweet. Morgan, what do you do in the professional world there that you've had an illustrious career in? Yeah, so I work, uh, I worked, I should say, as a ruminant nutritionist for 19 years for a regional feed company. And I really love that position, um, doing nutrition and consulting for both dairy and dairy goat herds um, in southern Minnesota. And just recently, I made a big career change, and I, I took a job as a nutrition and formulations manager for Milk Specialties Global. So I'm still involved in the agriculture industry and the dairy industry, but just kind of a little bit different part of it now. So I work more with milk replacer and calves, and where I used to work with, um, you know, on farm with, with dairy cows and goats. Well, we're excited to have you on here uh, to talk a little bit kind of about small ruminant nutrition, building a feed ration there, um, because there is, uh, I feel like there's a, a gap missing between a lot of people and kind of their feed ration as well there. So we're excited to talk about that a little bit later on. However, first, let's talk about what's happening on the farm. Laura, what's happening at your place? Uh, sure am enjoying spoiling these two little baby goats. And, uh, you know, those of us that 
have a small herd know that usually the first kids of the year get spoiled rotten. And these two definitely have They're They're just pretty fun. And, and, you know, it, I don't think it matters how many years you have goats. You always fall in love with the first time they leap up in the air and, and twist just for no reason other than they're just joyous. And I don't know how you could use another descriptor for how those baby goats act, but Total joy is just what I see when I watch them running around. So it's been a lot of fun. They they moved out of my kitchen into the garage with their warm little heat lamp on them. So um, it was almost 70 degrees here today in Missouri. And they're going to enjoy being out in the garage and hopefully not too upset when it hits. I think it's supposed to get down to 10 tomorrow night. So it's crazy, crazy weather. And that's it. We don't have another doe due until March. So that's kind of slow around here. What about you, Cameron? Um, on my farm here, uh, kind of similar to Laura, it was it snowed last week. And then all of a sudden it got warm today. So we had snow and then we had mud, which are kind of the two seasons in February and March. There's snow and there's mud and there's nothing in between. So um been dealing a lot with that recently here, um, but also preparing for, again, like Laura said, another cold spout as well here today uh, was well. But this weekend was really nice. We pulled goats. We pulled some blood on I hopefully the last pregnant doe, or if she's not pregnant, um, there will be consequences for her. Um, we pulled the last thing full of DNA off of a goat as well there. And also we are down 11 goats as of today. So we are excited about that. Does it seem empty in the barn? Um, yeah, well, there were kids, nine, nine buck kids left, um, and went to the pepperoni man. So we are excited about that. And then a couple, um, older does that had not necessarily, um, we're not staying around. So let's just say that, um, again, we're down sure. 11 goats and, and we're, we're excited to be down 11. Um, but many more hard decisions to come. Yeah. Morgan, have you guys started kidding season yet? Yeah, just barely. I was um, talking to Cameron earlier and I said that we had just one doe that had triplets today. And I had one about five days ago that had triplets. So just those two fresh right now. And then we have a pretty big March coming up here. I think I have 23 due in March. Um, Pretty spread out. So it'll just kind of keep us consistently busy. But just kind of getting back into the swing of things with bottle feeding babies and milking a couple does. So pretty quiet here still though. What is your buck to doe ratio so far? It's a perfect 50, 50. Yeah. One had uh, two, two does and a buck and the other one had two bucks and a doe. Very good. I will tell you what, getting back into the swing of things is so hard on those first kids because you're like, oh, I want the milkcation to stay longer. Yeah, and I think <laughs> that that, and also like, where did I put all that stuff last year when I put it away? You know, that was kind of my thing. It's like, I know I have this, but where did I put it? So... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Last year, Morgan, was the first year that I actually mindfully put things away. I mean, you know, like you, I've had them for a long time. Now, my youngest daughter just made that uh, sound, but really I did. I had like my kidding supplies in one big tote and it didn't take me as long to find stuff as usual, but there is always that 
I know I bought extra of this last year. I know I had this. Now, where the heck is it hiding right yeah. now? So, yeah. No, that's that's a good, it's a good goal to set is to put stuff and maybe make a note of where you put it. Because sometimes you find it and it's like, oh, that was a good spot. But I just didn't like note that I had put it there. So, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, safe places sometimes are too safe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, moving right along here, um, we're going to have a sponsor this week here um, for Goat Gab, an Oberhasli breeder, just like Morgan is here. So this week's sponsor is Angel Roveeder from Snowview Dairy Goats in Culver, Oregon, located right outside 15 minutes away from Redmond, Oregon. Uh, the Snowview Dairy Goat Herd breeds registered Oberhosleys and has a token Golden Guernsey as well. The Snowview Herd focuses on the show ring and enjoys that very much as well as makes a few specialty products. The Herd has had a lot of success in the show ring, including in 2019, two first place animals at the American Dairy Goat Association National Show. Additionally, uh, Angel also makes soap and lotion from her goat's milk as well. To find out more information on Snowview Dairy Goats or to order some soap or lotion, feel free to look up their uh, Facebook page, Snowview Dairy Goats, uh, and give them a like. Uh, thank you, Angel, for sponsoring this week's podcast, uh, and we appreciate you being a fan of the program. Thank you, Angel, and I hope I'll get to meet you sometime, maybe if I get to head out to Redmond some year. That'd be great. Remember, Laura, we're carpooling sometime just for fun. That's right, just for fun. <laughs> well, speaking of that... We do have some ADGA news. Cameron, you want to talk about our national show judges? Yes, we had six um, national show judges. Five voted from the membership and uh, one then selected by the committee. There are national show judges, and I don't have them in front of me, so I'm doing this from memory. It's Mark Baden, Joan Dean Rao, Lynn Fleming, Ed Cavanaugh, and Anna Thompson Hadjik, or the five that were voted in from the membership. Congratulations to those five. And then the sixth one picked by the National Show Committee is Jeremy Lesniak from the great state of New York. Jeremy Lesniak is a first-time ADGA National Show judge, and how fun for him to be uh, from his district and being able to represent kind of his district on the big stage. Cameron, do they try to do that? Do they try to get a judge from, you know, a new judge that's from the same area, or did it just happen to work out that way? It happened to work out that way, and this is my impression of it as well. When you looked at the vote getters, there were some other people that had judged a national show already, but the committee on that sixth spot, and this is from some of the insight there, is always going to try to prioritize a new judge to get in new judge blood in order to make that pool a little bit bigger there. So um, they selected Jeremy, and we congratulate him. Well, I think that's neat. And then when can we expect to hear which judges are judging which breeds and the schedule and so forth, Cameron? I, that I'm not sure of. Um, it, it has varied um, from time to time as well there. Um, generally, the National Show Committee will find out before the general membership does. Um, and then it will be released after uh, some afterthought as well. But a little kind of peek inside, a little uh, inside baseball here for the National Show um, schedule is the national show chair has to take into consideration a lot of things. One, they want to make sure that they're minimizing the amount of time that a national show judge is there so they can minimize the cost of that national show judge because they only pay for X amount of hotel rooms. So cost comes into a big factor there. Additionally on that, they don't want a judge that has judged a breed recently as well there. So I'll pick on Ed Kavanaugh, for example. He has judged Toggenberg's 
twice within the last 10 years, um, dating back to 2012. So he would probably not want to judge Toggenbergs this year um, because he's judged them in the past there. So that's always a factor as well there. And then they always want to pair kind of a big breed with a little breed. So if you think about your big breeds from a national show perspective here, your four big breeds are always, or well, more likely going to be Nubian, Alpine, Nigerian Dwarf, and then um, the La Mancha. So that's kind of your four big breeds there. And then your fifth kind of breed or outlier kind of depends on the year is the Saunen. Um, so that's kind of that there, but that fluctuates between the Saunen and the recorded grade and generally, and not to pick on these breeds at all, but the Toggenberg, the Oberhasli, the, uh, the recorded grade and the Sable um, uh, tend to be your four minor breeds there. So again, it just kind of fluctuates. And, and they may or may not, choose somebody that breeds that specific breed, correct? I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's a safe thing to say that because somebody's an active breeder that they won't be chosen to breed to judge that breed that they have. Correct. In 2016, for example, Mark Baden judged the national show. Mark Jaden Mark Baden is an Alpine breeder. He's been a guest on the podcast here as well. Um, but Mark actually judged the Alpines in 2016. So um it could be a possibility that, you know, for example, Jeremy Lesniak and Joan Dean Rao both breed Toggenbergs. They potentially could judge Togs. That's pretty cool. It's exciting. Yeah. It's always fun to it's always fun to find out, and and of course, there's lots of people who think that they can figure it out beforehand. But um, wait and see. That should be coming soon. We hope. Along there's, with the schedule, I know people are eager to find out, you know, who's showing first and who's showing last, and so forth. So I think what I'm most excited about to kind of see is when if they will allow people to leave early, like they did in Louisville, because I think that is a game changer especially if you are a Nigerian dwarf breeder and you could come in early and we could see an uptake in the amount of Nigerian dwarfs in the show as well there. I'm just talking out loud. So you're on the Colorama sale committee, Cameron. How, how can that work or can it work if we're able to have the Colorama again? Does that naturally preclude having early release? I'm not sure on that one. That's something that we will be discussing in the committee format, but it has not been brought to our attention yet. So, okay. I'm just curious because I, you know, just from my limited perspective and I'm not on either one of those committees, so I'm just, just talking. Um, I think that when we saw all of the pre-bidding that went on for the spotlight sale this year, I think that should be something that's a little reassuring for both the National Show Committee and the Colorama Committee, that if they did decide to do early release, that the prices would still be there. And, and I think could even be better because there are a lot more people who could trailer home um, a Colorama kid to somebody versus a Spotlight Sale kid. That's just my perspective. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree on that. I think it's we'll just have to wait and see and, and see what happens. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not on the National Show Committee anymore. Um, so we'll just kind of wait and see there. Yep, it'll be it'll be fun to find out. Yeah. Uh, moving right along in Adga News this weekend, the linear appraisal refresher was held in California, and it looked like there was um, some new candidates there. We did not get any confirmation on anything that was happened there, but there was some drama this week in the linear appraisal camp. We're not going to get into that drama, um, but we just wanted to let people know that the refresher did happen. There were members of uh, both uh, the up or the current appraisers there, some trainees, and then the linear appraisal committee was in California as well. 
I think that the positive takeaway from knowing that that refresher happened is um, you have to have the refresher before the um, layout of what districts get done when and and the appraisers that are signed and so forth. So um, we've gotten through that first part of getting the refresher done. Hopefully the next step is going to be um, seeing some dates and some potential times that, that we might expect appraisers to go through different areas. So that's exciting. Yeah. Morgan, did you uh, sign up for appraisal this year? I did not. My herd was appraised last year. And so I didn't even sign up this year again. Gotcha. That's that's kind of the camp yeah. that Kickapoo Valley's in this year as well as we got appraised last year. So we're not going to sign up again this year. Yep. That was kind of what I thought to give other herds a chance. And I know a lot of herds in, in Minnesota in our area were appraised. And so I, I kind of have a feeling that we probably wouldn't have... Uh, you know, like it's been speculated much priority this year anyway. So it'll be nice when we get to the point that everybody has, you know, an equal chance again. So I understand why they're doing the way that they're doing it. Um, it's just exciting to think that this program is continuing to grow and continuing to be such a priority with ADGA that we want to see it grow. So I think that's, that's something to keep in mind too. Yeah. Oh yeah. And last bit of ADGA news, Laura wants to share something. I'm going to build this up. (laughs) Well, don't make it a big build. I just, you know, I I think most of our listeners know that I am on the board of directors and this is my very first year with that and um, a huge learning curve with being a director, but I did kind of want to say something Um, as a member of the board of directors. I just want to say, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I am just sorry for all of the issues that have continued to negatively affect the work that all of us try to do with our dairy goats, especially in registering, whether you're trying to register a Guernsey or you're trying to um, transfer animals or um, move animals from AGS to ADGA. It's no one could have ever believed the here we are a year later after NG went live that we're still so frustrated with NG, but here we are. And um, you know, I, I, do feel like I can speak for all of the directors to say that we are just as frustrated as you are. And maybe even a little bit more just because we feel so helpless when it comes to trying to fix it. I mean, if, yeah, (laughs) Um, there's so much ugliness and so much hate going around on Facebook and other social media right now. And I'm not saying that some of what's being said is wrong or that that shouldn't be said or that you shouldn't vent your frustrations and ask questions and, and, you know, share with each other what you're feeling. And I'm just sorry that as your director, I don't have all of the answers. And, you know, we're asking those same questions. And in a lot of cases, we've learned that there's really no good answers for some of what we all want to know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just really hard right now. There are two things that I would really like to say in this public forum. And here's the first one. Legally, your directors cannot and should not ever comment on any personnel issues. And the second thing that I want to say concerning NG and case flow, because there's been a lot of discussion on social media about case flow, which was the company that was hired to, to build NG. Adga's contract with Caseflow ended in December. And then we signed a new contract for them to complete phase one of this NG build. And none of the money for phase one completion will be paid to Caseflow 
until that performance is complete. So it's not just a, I, I've heard people say that they feel like that we're just throwing money and throwing money. Well, things are changed to the point now that, that it's pay upon completion. So, and our expectation is that this new contract will be wrapped up by the end of March. So this phase one will be wrapped up then. So Cameron, you're on the IM committee. Is there anything that I said that didn't make sense there? Nope. I am going to shut my lips um, because I agree everything with Laura there. There's um, obviously um, other stuff that's happening, but I legally cannot say due to um, certain disclosures that I signed. So feel free if you need help, reach out to Laura, myself, directors, any members of the IM committee here. We are here to help. If not anything, you can come vent to us and we can relay your problems back again we're here to help you guys and 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 we but we are also in the same boat as you so again as one of your directors i just want to say i'm sorry i'm sorry that i can't wave a magic wand and fix everything i'm sorry that we're continuing to face these issues with ng and that we seem to take two steps forward and one step backwards over and over But you know what? I do know this. I know that there are so many dedicated people that are truly trying to do their very best to make ADGA better, to fix these problems, to to see the future of of our American Dairy Goat Association move in the right direction. Um, and, And because of the people that are working on this, I truly do believe that our organization will be better after we get through to the end of it. So I know that people get tired of hearing, hearing, just be patient, just hang on. But, um, you know, I really feel like in the end we're going to provide prevail and it's going to be, it's going to be good. It'll be good. So that's anyway, thank you for let, thank you for letting me say that. That's no problem. It needed to be said and over and over and over again there. So, all right, moving right along here, Morgan, are you ready? I'm ready, guys. All right. So we're talking about building a feed ration here, and that's kind of the focus of today's topic here. Um, I was excited to have Morgan on because of her rich background as well here. So let's let's talk it down to the basics here, and let's let's start from the beginning of building a feed ration. Morgan, where do where does one start when they want to say, okay, I want to build a feed ration? Yeah. So kind of when you asked me to do this, I I thought maybe I should approach this as a nutritionist going to work with a goat producer kind of the steps that I would take in gathering information and then how I would set up a diet. And then you guys can just kind of chime in if you have questions as I go and um, just let me know. So, you know, the, the first thing that I would do is, is meet with the producer. Hey, Laura or Cameron, tell me what the goals are for your farm. Um, Do you raise meat goats? Do you raise dairy goats? Do you raise, um, you know, buck kids? What size herd do you have? Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. What are your goals? And and then I, you know, would kind of move forward from there. And maybe it's a, a large herd where we're going to be doing more custom work. Maybe if it's a smaller herd, we're going to be using some what I want to call like floor stocking ingredients where we already have kind of pre-made um, feeds, which is what a lot of people buy. So those are some differences too. Um, but kind of just, just as an example today, I'm, I'm going to kind of say we're setting it up from scratch, like kind of a custom ration. So 
the first thing I'm going to do is, is take a look at your animals and determine those goals, like we said, and then sample your forages. And I know that you guys have had um, other guests that have talked about forages on your program here. And so a lot of your listeners are going to know about sampling forages and, um, you know, any, any feed mill or nutritionist can sample forages for you. In fact, you can do it yourself and send them to the lab. So I'm going to do that just to get an idea of the quality of your forages, because that's going to be the biggest part of your ration. And then um, after we get those samples back, I'm going to use my nutrition model. And, and this is kind of where some of those, um, the difference between kind of putting together a mix on your own at home versus having a nutritionist put something together for you. Um, you know, we have access to really dynamic systems that can really work with all the interactions between all the classes of nutrients and all the minerals and all the vitamins. And so that's really unique um, to people that are in nutrition. So, uh, you know, I'm going to set up your farm in the nutrition program, kind of, you know, what breed do you raise? What age, what's the average age of your herd? What kind of weather do you have? Um, you know, Minnesota, where it's horrible and snowy and terrible when goats are kidding versus the South where it's <laughs> hot and humid, you know, it really makes a big difference on what the animal's needs are. And it also makes a big difference on, you know, the type of forages and the type of commodities that are available to use. So that all needs to be put into consideration. Um, and then like your stage of lactation, your production level, that kind of stuff. That's all going to kind of identify that animal. And then all of those points help determine a dry matter intake. So the diet of your goats really is driven by the intake. So um, especially in a production, you know, a milk production animal. So we're going to identify that animal. And then got your forage sample back, takes a couple days. So we're going to input the forage sample and then go ahead and start choosing, um, you know, your protein and your carbohydrate and your fat, vitamin, mineral sources, all of those things. And so this is really going to be dependent on where you're from in the country. And I guess, unfortunately, I don't have like a real nationwide sort of experience with nutrition. So I'm kind of like Midwest corn and soybeans kind of person. Um, and you two probably are also, I would think. Um, yeah. And I'm most used to those type ingredients. Yeah. Sure. Yep. And so, you know, kind of pulling in ingredients. Um, <clears throat> and at this point, we have to think about something else also is, do, as a producer, do you want your feed to be pelleted? Um, do you want your feed to be a meal feed, which would be kind of like what soybean meal would look like, like a ground feed? Do you want it to be texturized, something, you know, picture like a horse feed or a calf feed or something where you've got, you know, some whole grains, maybe some oats, a pellet, some molasses, that kind of thing mixed in. So the form of that grain mix you're going to get is important in determining what kind of ingredients you can use. So, for example, do you guys... Do you guys feed a pelleted feed or what do you guys feed? I feed a pelleted feed. Okay. Uh, How about you, Cameron? Uh, we, uh, we are on a, um, uh, 
What are the other options again? I'm trying. I can visualize my feed, but I can't. Like a, think like about a texturized, so something texture, that looks texture, more like texture. a texture yes, feed. Texture. Okay, so there are some differences in in how we put together a pelleted feed versus a texturized feed. So when you're going to do a complete pellet, you have to consider what makes a good pellet because is there anything worse than having a pan full of fines after you feed your pellet? Like nobody likes that. So what kind of ingredients are going to make a good pellet? One that's going to be hard and that isn't going to crumble like in in transit or through augers or in your feed pans, that kind of thing. So that has to be considered. And, and then also there are some ingredients that can't be pelleted. So if you want to have a, a ground feed or a texturized feed, you might have more ingredients available to you because um, the heat that happens when you pellet can um, make some ingredients unstable or can damage like a coating that they would have on them that protects them from the rumen. So those are some considerations also. Um, so as we kind of pull in our ingredients, say we're gonna work with you know, corn and soybean meal. And then if we're gonna have a pellet, you might need things like alfalfa meal or beet pulp or wheat mids and a pellet binder and maybe like a flavoring and some molasses and a little bit of fat to hold that together. So you gotta kind of think about all that stuff. Now, if you're going to have a texturized feed, you can use some oats or you could use some shredded beet pulp. And you're probably going to have a pellet in there as your protein source, um, which is going to go through some of the similar considerations on pellet quality. So as we're pulling in ingredients, we're thinking about all of that stuff. Um, let's see. And then after we offer... All of the ingredients that we're going to offer, and this would include, you know, all of your trace minerals and your vitamins and any additives that you want to use, things like yeast products or medications. If you, um, say, are, are putting together a kid feed and you want to have like a coccidia stat in it. So all of those ingredients would be offered. And... Um, and I don't know if you want to kind of go through like any of like the mins and maxes of um, sort of that, you know, mineral requirements that that could be like a whole different program. But um, as a nutritionist, we do put all those in. Forage. You talked about forage testing there. How many times yep. per year do you recommend forage testing? Ideally every time you got a new batch of hay, we would test it and adjust the ration accordingly. Realistically, if, you're, if you have a grain mix that you like and you don't want to change it because the goats eat it well, they perform well, they milk well, and your hay doesn't change that much, say you get you know, some sort of alfalfa year round or an alfalfa grass mix, it's not super imperative to test that hay. And I think as goat producers, we all know that almost the most important thing is that they eat it well, right? The palatability, they don't waste it, they like it. So um, as a nutritionist, like I, I can't remember the last time I tested my own hay. I'll be honest, if they eat it good, I go with it. Um, so it's kind of contradictory, you know, like we want to know what the forage is. 
However, for a smaller scale farmer like myself, I'm probably not going to adjust my grain mix based on that forage sample. It's not going to be a big enough difference to change my mix. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I think just, especially if you're buying feed and you want to know if you're getting what you pay for, I would test the loads. It just gives you peace of mind that, you know, it is what they say it is. Um, And if there is some big difference, like, you know, once in a while you get some, like say a heat damaged, some heat damaged hay and you have a lot of bound protein, you know, that might make a difference in the ration. So it's really up to you and, you know, whatever feed company you're working with. That just makes me think I totally need to need to spend more time on looking at that because, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about concerns that I've had. Oh, this is a great load of hay. Oh, this isn't so good. And I haven't changed my ration at all. So, wow. Yes. Good stuff to think about. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, again, it's kind of being realistic on with with most goat producers. I, I did work with a lot of larger dairies, you know, anywhere from 300 to 1,000 head. And those were farms where we did a lot more customization of the rations because they were getting, a, you know, a big load every two weeks or something like that. It was easy to change. But for smaller farms where, you know, you might be getting a load of hay every couple months and you're getting a ton of feed a month or whatever it is, it's a little bit harder to customize and make those changes. So, um, and that does go back to, you know, we always say like choosing the best forage you can buy is really the key to healthy, productive animals. And so if that's the case, you know, just testing to make sure you know what you're getting is important. One thing you brought up in the pellets was you said the word fines. What is a, what is fines? Yeah. So, you know, when you, when we put together a pellet, all the feeds that go into that are ground and, you know, in the, in the mill of the feed company I worked for, um, those pellets also went through something called an expander. And you guys had asked a little bit about things like, like flaked corn or, you know, some of that kind of stuff, the different types of processing. Yeah. Um, but in that pellet, you know, all those feeds are ground and then they kind of go through this expander and it comes out almost like a cookie dough texture. And then it goes through the pellet mill and, um, they're formed into pellets. And that's a pretty good process. If they're cooled well and you've got good ingredients, it's going to be a nice hard pellet that doesn't fall apart. Um, if you get pellets that go through, say, say you get bulk pellets and they go um, are loaded onto your truck in an auger and then they come to your farm and you auger them out of your feed bin and then you, you know, put them into your feed pans, all of that, um, movement can break the pellets down and you'll get, you know, all those fines because everything was ground before it went into the pellet. As the pellets break, it just falls apart. So it might be a homogenous mix of what your pellet is, but just not in a form that the goats want to eat. So you're talking about the powder that I find sometimes when I've had custom grain mixed and I'm like, oh gosh, this is terrible. I can't feed this because my goats they just sneeze it away. They they won't even eat it. It's a waste. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. 
Yep. No, you know, goat, that's like the biggest, the biggest fear when putting together a goat, a pelleted goat feed is that either the goats won't, won't eat it or the pellet won't be hard enough and you'll have fines because of your, you know, transporting and through augers and that kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, it's just the breakdown of the pellets. And, and like I said, it might actually be a decent kind of complete feed, but it's not in a form that goats want to eat. So now that being said, goats can be trained to eat a ground feed. I know plenty of herds that feed kind of ground corn mixed with soybean meal and, you know, maybe that kind of feed. And with time, they will get used to anything. But if they're used to eating a pellet, and there's a bunch of fines in the bottom, they're going to skip it. That's for sure. They're picky buggers. Yeah. And sometimes they don't even like the pellets enough. And I don't know how goats can do this, but I swear I have a whole line of goats that can open their mouths in the feed pan and they will sort out all the little pieces of corn and kick out the pellets out the side of their mouths without even missing a beat. I don't know how they do that, but I know I can't have the only goats that do that sometimes. No, they're just really good at that. I'll totally agree with you there. So, and that is, you know, you guys, that is one advantage of having just a complete pelleted feed is they can't, like, if they want to eat, they have to eat it. They can't be sorting it away because all there are are pellets. So that is one advantage of having everything pelleted. And then, like you said, one disadvantage is, you know, once in a while you get a load that might taste a little different or smell a little different and they turn their noses up at it. Um, where if you're getting a texturized feed like Cameron has, you put a little molasses on that and you've got some corn mixed in and they maybe don't notice it as much. <laughs> you're, you're giving them the spoonful of sugar to make it go down, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely there. One last question. I kind of want to talk about the pellets a little bit more here. You said you talked about binders for pellets. What are some common binders for pellets? Yeah, there's some, there are some different ones out there. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I can't even remember the names of all of them, but um, like a Marabind, you know, they're just, they're products that help harden a pellet. Um, and every company is going to use something a little bit different. I know when I was um, doing ruminant nutrition and doing pellets like this, we used a combination of two different ones to help harden the pellet. And, um, you know, the, the type of ingredients that you use might call for more or less of that product. The time of year might call for more or less. So in the winter, um, pellets can cool, obviously, quicker, where if it's really hot and humid in the summer, they don't cool as well, and you can have more breakdown. So I don't know if that answered your question or not, but different companies are, are going to use different binders. Um, but this is, would be like a specific pellet binder. Um, if you're thinking about just ingredients that make good pellets, that's a little bit different. Gotcha. Makes okay. Sense. So let's stay on this pelleted theme here. One of the questions I had is what are the advantages and disadvantages of pellet pelleting your feet? I think we've kind of talked about it, but just a formal question there. Yeah, I, yeah, we kind of brought that up a little bit. It's just when Laura talked about her goats kind of, you know, spitting the pellets out the side of her mouth and eating the corn. Um, So the big advantage of pelleting is you get, you know, all the ingredients are blended together and pelleted. They don't have the opportunity to sort. So that's the big advantage. Another thing also, if you're getting a complete feed is your corn is ground fine. 
and you get better utilization of the starch in that corn. Um, it's less likely to make it into the hindgut, which can cause hindgut fermentation, which isn't great for the animals. And so having a fine ground corn in your pellet can be better for the animal. Um, so, you know, disadvantages, I think, are just the fact that it is hard. If you have a small ingredient change or a small smell change, any of that kind of stuff, it's a little bit harder to hide it. Again, I don't think I'm the only one who says I have had goats some years that just absolutely would go to town eating a texturized feed and you put any type of pellet in front of them and they're like, no way, Jose, I'm not eating this. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it happens. And it's, uh, I, I know with the pellet, a lot of, a lot of times people are like, our goats will never eat it. But you know, if it's the only thing they've ever had, they usually, <laughs> they usually don't turn their noses at it. And so, you know, starting little babies on a pellet and then just keeping them on them all the way through um, generally works. And also another thing is, is we as producers have to be a little bit patient. Sometimes it takes a week or two for them to get used to a new feed and you just kind of got to rough it out. Um, you might feel like they're not eating a darn thing, but eventually they will. So, and I know it's not fun, especially when we have you know, show animals and high production animals, we don't want to watch them turn their nose at feed. But sometimes if you are going to make a big change like that in your feeding program, you just have to give it time. So my kind of my next question here, and this is a 4-H showmanship question, not not American Dairy Goat Association showmanship class, but a 4-H showmanship class. What is the correct amount of protein for a proper dairy goat nutrition ration? Yeah, that's... <laughs> There isn't really a, a right or wrong answer to that. I think, you know, if the 4-H'er would say, uh, you know, total diet crude protein anywhere from, you know, a 16 to an 18, you'd probably be fine. That's that's probably a good general recommendation. And Morgan, is that is that year round or is that just during lactation or is that during, is, is yeah. there a different answer for different stages yeah, there are. And that that's a good question. I'm kind of picturing, you know, a milking goat in my head. But for sure, if you've got a dry dough, especially a mature dry dough, the protein requirements are much less. Um, you know, we're talking maybe like a 12% crude protein. And, you know, crude protein is a, a pretty basic number. Actually, we don't even balance for crude protein. So um, it's just something that people they recognize the term and can see it because it's on your feed tag and it's on your hay sample and that kind of thing. But as a nutritionist, we don't even balance for crude protein. So, you know, things like um, rumen available protein, bypass protein, metabolizable protein, and your amino acid supply, which are all kind of part of that protein category, they all sort of change what that crude protein of the diet needs to be. But just as like general recommendations, yes, like little kids on milk, like your babies can have a 21% protein, um, you know, 20 to 21% is a good place to have like your creep feed or your starter feed. And then you're growing kids, you know, 16 to 18. And this would be like, uh, you know, three, four months old on up. And then your milking does a 16 to 18, of course, kind of like your higher production does. Um, and your like, say, yearlings that are still growing as well as trying to milk. 
need more protein. And then your dry toes, like I said, could do pretty well on like a 12%. So yeah, that's just kind of a basic kind of protein summarization. That's really helpful. That's great. That's very good to know. Uh, moving right along here, um, let's talk about some of the, I guess, the basic ingredients here. And in the Midwest, corn is king. So let's talk about corn and why is that maybe so important in a ration there? Yeah, corn in the Midwest, you know, that's going to be your number one source of energy. Um, and a lot of that is going to come from starch. And and it's mostly, you know, economic in our area. So it's it's a dense source of energy and it's cheap. So that that is the main source that comes into most diets. Now, in other parts of the country, there's going to be maybe other sources. And even in our area, we can use, you know, barley and oats and wheat and that kind of stuff. However, it's not quite as common. I just have another question about corn. <clears throat> like, yeah. like um, I think we've all seen cattle when they've eaten whole corn at times go straight through them and you see cow pies with whole corn in it. So when you're thinking about feeding dairy goats, um, I'm guessing that it does make a big difference on what uh, condition or what you do to that corn before you feed it to them, whether it's crimped or it's cracked or ground yeah, yep. or. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is really important for the health of your animal too. Um, now, and this is kind of assuming that we have an appropriate kind of forage to grain level and that your starch percent is in a, within a good range in your diet, um, which could be, you know, anywhere from, you know, 20 to 28% starch in the diet. Um, but corn um, and goats are good cud chewers. You know, when we watch a goat chew their cud, they're pretty aggressive. Um, they take a lot of chews per, you know, per cud. So they do a good job of breaking down corn if you are feeding whole corn. Um, but whole corn has been bred to be pretty hard. And it has a thing called a prolamine matrix in it, um, which is this really hard shell that makes it hard for the rumen bacteria to get in and digest the starch. And that's why you see cows or steers pooping out whole corn is because that prolamine matrix is so hard that they can't get it broken down um, to digest the starch. So what we can do is we can process that corn. And what that does is allows more of the corn and the starch to be digested in the rumen and less of it to escape into the hind gut Um, because corn will ferment in the hind gut but it's not good for the animal. It can cause inflammation and that inflammation um, causes the immune system to react, which takes glucose, uh, which uses energy. And then that's taken away from milk production. So it's kind of this big cascading effect. And so by doing things like you had mentioned, like crimping or flaking, you're breaking that shell down, which improves the surface area for bacteria to attach to. And then when we talked about pelleting and using fine ground corn, and um, we measure corn grind in microns, it's called. And so fine ground would be like your 400 micron or something. And then kind of like a crack corn might be 1200 micron. But the finer it gets, um, the more likely it is that that corn is going to get digested and that they aren't going to be pooping it out. Um, and there's been, you know, not as probably limited 
number of studies in goats, but in dairy cattle, we see differences of almost 0% starch in the manure up to like 25% starch in the manure. And can you imagine just having your animal poop up 25% of the feed that you're feeding them? It's just crazy. So I think it's a really good question and really something people should think about when they're feeding whole grains. Um, yeah, how much ends up in the poop? Yeah. So, and also, you know, <laughs> that fermentation that takes place because it escapes the rumen isn't good for the animal. So, yeah, that's kind of my two cents on on the on the corn grind, and and I'm not really here to you know sort of tell people that they have to do it one way or the other because there's a lot of people that like to feed you know, whole grains. And then there's a lot of people that like a pellet with the fine ground corn. And then there's a lot of people in between. It's kind of what works for your herd. But, you know, that's some of the reason that um, that you see the corn in the in the manure. So, yeah. Very interesting. Good to know that. So to sum up what I'm what I'm hearing is that one goats waste corn and goats also waste hay, or is that just from my experience? They waste hay? <laughs> yeah, I would say they waste more hay than they do corn. And and like I said at the beginning, goats are really good cud chewers, and the rate of passage isn't as fast as you know high producing dairy cows. So they got more hay. They've got more kind of physical fiber in their rumen, and so they have a better chance of getting that corn chewed up. So you know you might not. You might not see any corn in the manure of your goats if you're feeding whole corn, but you might see some. So it kind of depends on that cud chewing and and then how much physically effective fiber that you're feeding and, and how long it hangs out in the rumen. So, Huh. That is fascinating. What about moving, I guess, a, a Midwest staple here is also soybeans or soybean meal there. What's kind of the purpose of, I mean, kind of two different things, both soybeans and soybean meal. meal. Can you kind of explain the difference in their nutritional um, amounts there, I guess? Yeah. Um, soybeans are kind of the gold standard as a protein supplement, I guess, um, probably almost anywhere. We don't feed a lot of whole soybeans to animals, um, whole raw beans, but soybean meal definitely. And, you know, other products like um, Amino Plus, which is a soybean meal type product. and um, you know, those are used really extensively in, in ruminant nutrition and are probably the base of almost every concentrate pellet or complete feed. Um, 48% protein, your high pro soybean meal is, and it's got a good amino acid profile also. So that's going to be your main protein source in almost all feeds. Gotcha. So corn for energy, soybeans for protein. Yep. And there are some other, you know, there's a lot of feeds are going to have, um, you know, there might be, I guess, a little, you know, some distillers, grains, linseed meal, um, you know, alfalfa meal, canola meal, there's, you know, all kinds of other protein sources, but soybean meal is kind of the, kind of the number one. So I have a question about soybeans. Um, I used a feed ration quite a while back that called for roasted soybeans. So, and I was able to get them at quite a hefty price, but I just want, always wondered, um, why was that called for possibly instead of just regular soybeans and what the roasting did 
did to it. Yeah, the roasting is probably improving some of the um, um, bypass properties of the soybean meal. And, you know, it smells amazing. They kind of smell like peanut butter. Mm -hmm. And they are, you know, kind of like a cracked, cracked type product. Certain parts of the country, they are um, more popular. And farms do tend to use roasted beans um, because it is a way that they can process raw soybeans on farm. There's like mobile roasting, um, I guess, companies that come around and do that on farm. So we do see it in Wisconsin quite a bit, actually, roasted beans. Um, but, you know, and I think it's an okay product to use. And I don't, we haven't really talked about fatty acid profiles, but the fatty acid profile of roasted beans um, can be a little bit hard on the rumen bacteria population. They have what we would call um, C18-2, steric acid, which can um, actually reduce the butter fat. So that's one reason that we don't see it as commonly as in the past um, with more fatty acid nutrition and research coming to the forefront. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but you know, people that have fed roasted beans, like animals love it. It smells great, but it does have a really high price tag on it. And I, and I don't think it's going to be any more beneficial than just using a soybean meal product. Good to know. Nobody wants to throw money away. No, that's for sure. What about something that I feel like kind of the, in most common feed rations here is molasses. What does, I mean, besides making it smell good, what else does that provide for animals? Yeah. Molasses is going to provide, you know, some carbohydrate, you're going to get some sugar there. And when you think about carbohydrates to a ruminant, it can come from, you know, all kinds of forms. Um, Rumen available carbohydrates can come from your corn. They can come from fiber. They can come from sugars. Um, So yeah, it's just providing a carbohydrate source, but mostly molasses is used just as a, to control dust. Um, so if you've got a feed that's got some fines in it, like we talked about earlier, or has like a dustier type, you know, oats can be kind of dusty and dirty. Um, so yeah, control dust kind of bind fines and then also it smells, you know, it smells great. And realistically, it's probably more to make the farmer happy than the animals themselves. So it's definitely not a requirement, but it sure does make feed look and smell good. Yeah, I, I would agree. And we we can always tell when we have too much molasses put into a batch because the the feed the the feed globs together a lot more compact than not enough molasses. Yeah, and most feed mills, um, actually, a lot of feed mills kind of complain about molasses because it can kind of like gum up their gum up their feed mills and in the winter you know there's winter blend molasses so it doesn't cake hard in the winter and that kind of stuff so it can be some trouble for the feed mills and and honestly a lot of times in the winter I would use like soy oil kind of to control dust like 20 pounds per ton of soy oil and then using a flavoring or a scent like cherry flavoring can do just as good as molasses um and molasses, generally speaking, it's you got to talk to your feed mill about it, but they'll put like 75 to like maybe 125 pounds per ton of molasses, sort of based on what their milk can handle. So a lot of that is just 
production um, kind of restrictions on how much they can use. So there are some kind of some different ways to, to do what molasses does, but again, I would say that it's pretty, it's extremely common. And, and there is no problem with it, you know, at that little bit per ton, bringing in those extra carbohydrates. Very interesting. So what about some other things that people will throw in like, like black oil, sunflower seeds or cotton seed meal or things like that? Yeah, I think, you know, I've never, I've never been one to use sunflower, black oil, sunflower seeds. I think just from a cost standpoint, it was never really, um, it never felt like something I should use. And actually from a feed, like a feed manufacturing standpoint, it wasn't something that our feed mill carried or used. And so I'm not super familiar with the nutrient profile of sunflowers, but I'm guessing it's just bringing in, you know, some oil and some fatty acids with it. And I know that there's pretty, you know, anecdotal or, or maybe some, some good research that shows it's good for like hair coat and that kind of thing. Um, cottonseed on the other hand, um, it is quite common and especially kind of where we live here close to the river, we have quite a bit of cottonseed use in our area and, um, it can also, it's, it's an unsaturated fat. And so that's another thing when you think about these vegetable oil or vegetable type products is they are an unsaturated fat and the rumen has to saturate those. So that um, takes some extra work for the rumen before they can utilize that fat. Um, but the cool thing about cottonseed is that the fat is like encapsulated in that seed and the seed is pretty hard. So it takes some time. It's almost like a slow release fat. So that's kind of cool. And then you got the fuzzies, which provide some fiber. So you kind of get fat and fiber with cottonseed. Um, I have fed it before. And it takes, it's one of those things that goats sort of have to get used to, but they will eat it. Yeah. I've had some that love it and others that like, look like, are you trying to poison me? This is disgusting. So walk away. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And cottonseed, you know, if you live close to the river, it's maybe will price in for you. Or if you live close to a place that produces cotton, it might be cost effective. Um, a lot of times, um, it's hard to handle for feed mills because um, it's bulky and it doesn't flow through their bins. And then, so then the feed mills will carry it in bags and then it gets really costly to have bagged cottonseed. So that's another thing to consider is just, um, is it worth the cost? And sometimes it might be, and sometimes it might not, but you know, definitely a common ingredient. Huh. Interesting there. Um, what about some of those, I, I like to call them extras here. They're not necessarily in my feed ration, but like uh, a beet pulp or something like that. Do you find that pretty common there in, in feed rations? Yeah, beet pulp is really common. It's a digestible fiber source and you get some carbohydrate from it. It's really palatable to animals. And of course, growing up um, and being in an industry that has a lot of people that do showing we know that it can, you know, cause that nice rumen fill and that deep body, you know, when we, when we feed a lot of beet pulp, as soon as it gets some water on it, it expands. So yeah, beet pulp is really common and it's actually used quite a bit as a digestible fiber source in instances where forage quality is poor. 
So say you've got I don't know, some first crop alfalfa that got rained on for two weeks and then, you know, you kind of bailed it in the mud or whatever. So it's kind of poor quality and heat damaged and that kind of thing. So we might supplement the, the fiber part of the diet with something like beet pulp. So um, in that, I'm saying like shredded beet pulp. Beet pulp also comes in pellets. So a lot of times, like on the show side, we see beet pulp shreds. Um, on the manufacturing side, a lot of times it's in pellets. But yeah, it's a it's a good good fiber source, good digestible fiber. I have heard, and this is a theory about beet pulp, and I've seen people do this here, that if they put it in water, people the goats will like it better or it expands or something there. Have you seen that before? Yeah, it does. Um, I've never soaked beet pulp. I'm I grew up with registered Holstein cattle, and when we showed them at fairs, we would always give them a great big giant pan of, you know, 20 pounds of beet pulp with like, you know, 10 gallons of water dumped on it. And that stuff would just like expand just this big fluffy pile of, you know, mushy beet pulp. And the cows would just eat it like crazy. Um, I've never tried to feed it to my goats that way. I just like, they're so picky. I just can't imagine them eating like soggy food, but some people I think do and have good luck with it. But yeah, just like picturing my goats eating soggy beet pulp. I don't know. Like you guys can eat it and then take a drink of water. That's kind of how I fed it. So yeah. Cameron, have you ever tried to feed it wet? No, we we top dress it and feed it dry. They seem to like that. Yeah, I've mine'll eat it dry all day long, but you put any water on it and they act like a bunch of Nubians. No, no offense yes. to our Nubian friends, but they're just like, what the heck? And walk away. I'm like, whoa, stop. You're supposed to like this. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would tend to agree that most goats sort of act that way. So Yeah, no. No, they they said no. So <clears throat> Morgan, some sometimes um, you'll hear people talk about a different feeding regimen for their animals for different issues they have going on. And I know we already talked about like your dry senior does need a lower amount of protein. Um, what about those um, geriatric animals that maybe are having a hard time keeping condition on and um, you know, you're, you're hoping to get them through this kidding season again, or, or they just look like, like they need a little bit extra of something. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of hard to say, you know, what is the reason that they're thin? Do they have like teeth problems or do they have, you know, some kind of, you know, disease like a CAE or something that's causing them to be thinner? Or are they just really like 15 years old and are pretty skinny? Um, I think the best advice is to provide, you know, a high quality forage that has a really high NDFD Um, or TTNDFD, which is like um, NDF digestibility and total track NDF digestibility. So that's the amount of fiber that can be digested out of that hay. So that's probably your number one thing is to provide really highly digestible forage. And that's where that sample is going to come in handy. And then um, provide really energy dense grains. Um, And you might want to include some extra like fat type products in that too. Um, but sometimes those old, those old girls are just going to be thin. You know, you can do your best to provide a high quality grain mix. And for whatever reason, they just have trouble keeping weight on. Um, 
Yeah. And and then so when you're talking about like like a higher fat product, are you talking about like a flow fat or are you talking like rice pellets or yeah, or um, all of the above? <laughs> yeah, I I don't have a lot of experience with like rice pellets, but kind of I'd mentioned like fatty acid profiles previously and you know thinking about um you know providing kind of a balanced profile of fats um you might use something like a palm fat you might use something like flax seed um and you can use some fat vegetable type fats that have that steric acid in it um like your um any other type of vegetable fat so some of those are really um really dense sources of energy for the animals too. And incorporating like some flax or some palm oil in your feed might be a good idea for them. Okay. Good to know. What about some animals that are maybe going for higher production or you're pushing for, you know, a a herd of, you know, 42 to 5,100 pounds of milk production here. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, that's kind of where nutrition gets pretty exciting is for those really high production animals. And, you know, you're going to have to really focus on those protein fractions. Like I said, your, you know, room integratable protein, your bypass protein, your metabolizable protein, and then your amino acids. And I think that's one area where goat nutrition is a little bit harder is amino acids, supplying them. Number one, because amino acids are, um, they have to be protected from the rumen. So they have to get through the rumen. So that's one challenge. Um, And then they can't, you know, most can't be pelleted. So because the pelleting process affects that coating that allows them to bypass the rumen. And so there's some challenges with feeding amino acids to goats. Now, there are some that can be pelleted, a product called like uh, MetaSmart can be, but it's so horrible. It tastes terrible. Goats won't eat it. I've never eaten it, but I know that goats won't. <laughs> so, you know, that's some challenges. So kind of moving forward into these really high producing herds is figuring out how to deliver amino acids to these does. Um, by doing that, we can provide that protein in a smaller package, if that makes sense a denser amino acid source, because those are the building blocks of protein, but we're going to provide the ones that are most limiting. Um, And then the next part of that is, like I talked about that fatty acid profile for those old goats, um, is making sure that those, um, and this is all like in grams, making sure we're supplying the right amount of grams of fatty acids. We're not supplying too much C18-2, which can cause butterfat depression and that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, really focusing on energy. I think a lot of goats, uh, because we feed mostly hay and then we have a hard time meeting like starch requirement because we don't want to feed too much corn to cause ruminal acidosis. So is there a way that we can provide, um, you know, thinking like corn silage, that kind of forage source versus just straight hay. So those are some, I think, considerations for high producing goats. Um, And of course, genetics and management play a huge role in that. Um, You can't forget about that sort of stuff. But kind of moving forward, it's got to be 
you know, amino acids and fatty acids and like the protein, protein sources and then the energy supply from your forages. So that's kind of what I think those high producing herds need. Gotcha there. Gotcha there. Um, what about, let's talk, let's maybe just delve briefly into medicated feeds there. Um, what are some of the considerations that um, we need to have as producers using if we are choosing to use a medicated feed? Yeah. And so um, if you are, you know, having lactating does and you're either selling milk or drinking milk, there's not much available in terms of medication for lactating animals. You can use products. Um, now I shouldn't even say this because I'm not sure if they're approved for goats, but things like Clarify would be a medication for um, fly control, which is for sure approved for non-lactating goats. But thinking about your kids, um, you know, rumensin and decox for coccidia control, I think are important. You know, you can put that either, you can get like decox M, which you can mix into whole milk um, or get milk replacer with decox in it. And then using a coccidia set like rumensin in your starter can um, really do a good job of keeping, keeping coccidia at bay, especially if you're in a really concentrated feeding, you know, if you've got hundred kids in a little pen, it's, it's no fun to treat coccidia. So if you can kind of prevent it before it starts, that's, I think the best way to go. Um, you do need some like things like uh, Neoterra, um, which can be used for other bacterial kind of diarrheal infections. You do need, you do need a VFD for that. And that's your um, veterinary feed directive. So you need to have a, basically a prescription from your vet and give it to your feed supplier. Um, so some of that is changing. And thinking back, you know, maybe probably almost been 10 years ago now when the VFD started, um, kind of more, of course, more emphasis was placed on prevention versus treatment. And so... Um, you know, talking about your moss type products and your essential oil type products and that kind of thing in feed um, to help sort of prevent disease has been really popular. And I think, of course, prevention is the way the industry should go. So it's not really a medication, but it's sort of replacing the medications that the industry is moving away from. Gotcha. Gotcha there. One last thing here. What about those that might be undernourished or overnourished or a little fluffy? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think when I talk to, I talk to a lot of like 4-H clubs about nutrition and it has to be pretty simple. And I almost always say like feed to the body condition that you want. And of course, some people don't know, you know, what a, if a goat is too thin, you know, we all see animals that are too thin at, you know, some 4-H shows and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, just feed the body condition. And so um, learn how to body condition score your herd. And if, and if they're under, under conditioned, 
work with somebody on either improving, you know, improving the feed that you have or feeding more of the feed that you have, that kind of thing. And then overconditioned animals can have just as much or even more trouble than underconditioned animals can have. Um, we know that goats tend to put even more fat internally in their bodies around their organs than they do externally. So if an animal looks overconditioned on the outside, it's probably pretty severe on the inside. So um, I think just, you know, watching that is important. And there's always going to be outliers in a herd. So, you know, if you're sort of body conditioning, scoring your herd and looking at them in general, like if there's one skinny one and one fat one, maybe throw them aside and say, how does, how does the base of my herd look? And that'll give you a good idea if your nutrition program is working the way it should. Very good. Good to know. That's perfect. Morgan, thank you so much for offering or agreeing to be with us here this week. Um, we're just tickled to have you. And um, this is one of those episodes that I think you need to grab a notepad and go back and listen to it and take some more notes on it because just a lot of great information here. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I know it's like, it's a super huge topic and it's a topic that people have a lot of different opinions on and there's a lot of good information and a lot of misinformation out there. Um, but I think the important thing is just, you know, sort of evaluate your herd. And, and like we said at the end here, how do they look in terms of body condition? How do they look in terms of hair coat? Are they performing in terms of milk production the way I expect them to? And do I have any health problems that might be related to nutrition? And I think those that's a good place to start. And there's a million different ways to feed your animals, and they can all be good. But there's also lots of places that people can improve. So it's good to ask questions. And I know, like, we just barely scratched the surface. But um, I appreciate you having me. And, yeah. Morgan, where can the listeners find more information about the Hay Creek Farm? We have a Facebook page. It's Hay Creek Farm. And we have a web page at Hay Creeks with an S on the end, haycreeks.com. And I would be remiss to not uh, have you tell the listeners that there will not just be Oberhasleys and recorded grades on there, but there will be Nigerians, right? Yes. Um, my, actually my mom is where I, you know, got started with the goats all those years ago when I was just a little kid and she has been raising, my mom has been raising Nigerians. Oh gosh. I don't know, maybe 15 years now. And so there is a whole tab on our webpage dedicated to my mom's Nigerians also. <laughs> Well, I know how much you love those little goats, so I, I thought I'd have, have the people share, oh. share the people there. I know your mom has some really nice Nigerians because um, we had a couple of them come come my way to some family members here in Missouri. So, oh, nice, um, yeah, yep, yeah, then I, yep. She she does, and we're very excited. I um, this is way off topic, but I AI'd one of her Nigerians that she had provided for. Um, buck collection and the dough settled and she's due here in like 10 days or so. 
So really? we're pretty excited about that. That's exciting. Uh, yeah. As all- as always, we want to thank our sponsor, Angel, uh, from the Snowview Dairy Goats in Culver, Oregon. Again, thank you for being our sponsor this week. And if you have any and a few listeners want to go ahead and check out Snowview Dairy Goats on Facebook to find them for more information about her herd, that would be much appreciated. As always, listeners, thank you so much for joining us this week. If you like us, tell a friend. If you don't like us, give us some feedback. Uh, feedback is a blessing, so we do appreciate that feedback. And if you have any suggestions on um, what you'd like for us to talk about, uh, feel free to drop us some suggestions as well. And everybody, take some time and go out and hug a goat this week. It really does a lot for your mental health. I'm just throwing that out there. And maybe stay off Facebook. Wait. <laughs> I'm not going to say that, but um, anyway, as Cameron said, we do appreciate all the feedback that we get. and We appreciate you spending time with us. So have a great week, folks, and we'll hit you next week.